Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 337. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 337 you're listening to. My guest today is live sound mixer, audio coach, and noise abatement consultant, Peter Klass, who lives in Hasselt, Belgium. Peter has a great YouTube channel that I've been watching called Masterclass, spelled with his last name in mind, M-A-S-T-E-R-C-L-A-E-S. And this is a channel that I've been really enjoying quite a bit. I enjoy his approach to teaching and sharing knowledge. And after connecting on LinkedIn, we made arrangements to have him join me today and share his experience working in live sound and a little bit in the studio, working with bands like Arsenal and Simple Minds. So uh, very much looking forward to having Peter on. So Peter Class coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about exploration. I'm a big fan of exploring new concepts, new ideas, and improving on what I do. Sometimes when exploring, I find the only way I can find out if a concept is viable is to purchase the gear that supports the idea. That means buying something I may not even keep if I decide the concept is not worthy of pursuing for the long term. That gear you buy might end up changing your whole setup or workflow for the better. Or for the worse. It could improve your world or become a major distraction. It could be simple and low cost or complex and expensive. If you're going with complex and expensive, you might consider asking for a loaner of the gear to test it out. Now, many manufacturers or dealers can help with that. You just need to find the right people to ask. Planning for your new idea is key, of course. You'll watch YouTube videos, you'll read articles, talk to friends, talk to dealers, manufacturers, and how much you do, once again, depends on the size of your idea. Because it could be as simple as switching from hard disk drives to solid state drives, or adding a file server. Or it could be as complex as turning your whole mix room into a Dolby Atmos approved room and everything in between. If you find the idea is not worth spending money on after trying and buying, you need to make sure you can return the gear. Always make sure you have an exit strategy with the gear you buy. Talk to your dealer to make sure you are clear on what the return policies are, And when you get the gear you are considering, open it with kid gloves. Treat it like you are going to return it. Don't rip into the packaging and lose the parts that come inside. However, don't be afraid to try your ideas because you never know where they might lead. Now, of course, if you are deep in debt and have not got a grip on your finances, please don't go into more debt. These ideas I'm proposing are based on those who have managed their money. If you are in debt, Don't do any of this until you get out of debt. However, if you have a grip on your money and have an idea, try it. See where it leads. If it works, great. If not, do not hesitate to return that gear and move on. The key here is don't be afraid to try your ideas. Because once again, your workflow, your whole audio practice could change in a dramatically great way. That's my rant. 
Thanks for listening. That's it. Let's get to it. Peter Class here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's great to have you here. I'm a fan of your YouTube channel, and I've been watching every video that you put out. I find even when you're doing the things like going through your rack of gear or racks of gear, I should say, there's always some little tidbit that I always learn from you because you're you're such a detailed guy and you really seem to understand your gear, which I really respect. And it's fun fun to listen to you talk about what you're doing. So welcome to the show. Let's just jump right in with where you grew up. You grew up in Belgium. Yeah, yeah, very small local town of uh, about 60,000 people now and it's about 90,000 people and it's a little bit wedged between um, Germany and Holland yeah we're very quickly in Cologne but also in Paris but also in London so it's a nice central piece of, of location in Europe so that's very interesting so you how do you say the way it looks it looks like hustled but am I hustled yeah okay yeah, exactly Exactly. Well, if you look at Belgium, it's really at the eastern side of the country. And the uh, most important things that happen here are we brew a good Geneva. It's like gin. And we have a world famous big festival called Pukkelpop. You might have heard about Werchter, Rock Werchter, but we have a festival here in Hasselt as well. And it's at the end of August and it's about 70,000 people each day divided over about 10 stages. So it's a pretty large stop for touring bands. Well, we're, we're obviously going to have to come back and discuss that because I know that Front of House Sound has is, is been a major part of your life. Mm-hmm. There's something that I love about your story and... It's the fact that you lived above a music shop, which you had to pass through on a daily basis. This shop, of course, belonged to your grandfather, if I'm correct. Yeah, he founded that in 1947, and um, he died just a few months before I got born. So um, my father and my mother, they both ran that shop. And then, you know, you know, they, they said, well, you have to study some economics and, and you got to go to school because you're going to take over the business later on which apparently I did not do. Um, They were not that uh, happy with it, but um, yeah, it was my way. But it lent me the opportunity to uh, know all about the instruments and about the musicians' lives and how they looked at their careers, etc. So uh, that was, uh, I think, probably one of the best schools I went through instead of going to school. And why did you not want to take over the shop? Oh, because when I was about 16 years old, I got into the technical side of, of music. Um, although I had to go to music school and play, study the piano for about seven or eight years. But I was always much too nervous to, to perform. And I found my calm in being a life sound engineer and also try my best to be a good recording and mixing engineer in the studio. So that made me happy. And running the the shops uh, did not make me that happy. So it was a logical choice for me. And how did you find your way into live sound? What led you to that? 
Well, when I was about 15 years old, my father, who had been playing in, in some bands for, for many, many years, he was a bass player. One day he came to me and he said, Ah, oh, Peter, I, I bought myself a multi-core cable. Would you like to join us for uh, the show on, on Saturday and Sunday? So that was my first stint into <laughs> live sound. I, I bought some books because I thought I could read them while the guys were playing on stage, which, which was apparently not the case. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought it was really nice to go into that live sound and just be a part of the band. And, you know, as a musician, I had some okay qualities, but from certain point in life you go like oh if i become a life sound engineer i can work with much more talented people who are on stage and you know i have my talent as a front of house engineer and that worked out better than uh trying to be a good musician did you have any disappointment in leaving any part of your musicality behind or your or just being a musician in general no, I think I, I got the real breakthrough was when a company I, I worked for at the time, they started doing Night of the Proms, which is a really big concert and a really nice tour in, in Europe. And the guy who did the job at that moment, he asked me, well, Peter, you know, <laughs> with my big mouth, I uh, talked myself into the Night of the Proms, but I don't know the difference between a bassoon and a clarinet. So uh, he needed somebody to... Hmm read the sheet music and um, guide the guys through uh, the process of, of assembling a mix of all the different instruments. So I was there just reading the sheet music and, and going like, oh, there's a flute solo or there's a cello solo or there's a guitar solo coming up. And I was like, I, I wouldn't call myself the musical director, not at all. But I was just guiding them through what, what was happening on, on the musical uh, side of it. And I think that was a, a big advantage because there's a lot of sound engineers, they are great with music, but don't always know how to read the sheet music. And because of my uh, theoretical and practical uh, musical education, I had the chance to just be a part of it. And a year later, I wasn't reading the sheet music, but I was mixing or pre-mixing the strings for that tour. And for the audience, Night of the Proms is, it's got a full classical orchestra, a choir, yep. and an electric band. Mm -hmm. And... Do they team up with people like Joe Cocker and Sting and Toto and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got all the big names come in and uh, year after year, you know, there's a, a really nice roster of world famous artists that came along. And, you know, it's it's a tour that starts in October and ends in December. So they tour pretty much all of Europe, especially Germany, Holland. They go to Denmark, etc. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty busy. And you ended up replacing the main guy on that gig... Yeah, for for certain tours, yeah, I did a tour in in France, and and you know, with him, I it was one of my mentors. Still, uh, super uh, sound engineer Patrick Domustier. Yeah, I learned a lot from him, and he took me to the studio because he knew, you know, I had a little bit of uh, studio experience, and together we learned a lot, and and we even had some pioneering inventions that we did that didn't exist, like an orchestra monitoring system that we we designed ourselves, and yeah, stuff like that. For we 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 started with with some some experimenting with some in ears, and yeah, it was the beginning of of technology we all know right now. Most people are. They're either front of house, monitor engineers, mm -hmm. or they work in the studio. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's rare, but you just don't meet that many people that do both, that do live sound and studio work. 
Well, I think maybe it used to be that like if people from the recording industry came into the live industry, it could be disastrous because they didn't know the word feedback. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think uh, getting into the aspect of of live sound is an easier step. But there's always a step to go into the to the recording industry because I think during those days that when I was 18, 20 years old, there was no recording equipment in the live sound whatsoever. You know, we had some D12s or D112s and some 421s, 57s, 58s, and that's it. And at a certain point, you know, the Chinese, they started making some large diaphragm condensers and I bought those and took them into the live world and showed them like, hey, guys, look, you know, there's no shame about using uh, large diaphragms uh, in, in a live situation and et cetera, et cetera. And I think I, I because I, I uh, had so much interest in live sound, but also studio sound that people just gave me the chance. And here I am with some nice gear behind me that I acquired over all these years. But that's just because I looked at it as a as a hobby. And I have never had the, the the idea that I worked for a single day in my life. Yeah. You've been doing it for like, what, 30 years? 35. Yeah. I'm turning 50. And uh, I started when I was 15. You know, it was like my dad, he, he took me to some concerts and he played in a big band. And then when I was 18, this was my first solicitation with a band who needed a front of house engineer. And I was nervous as hell. And uh, I had to go to the rehearsal room and they uh, just gave me a small 16-channel board with a, an Alessis MIDI Verb 3 and that's it. And I just did my thing that I thought that was okay and they liked it. And we went to a bar after the, the rehearsal and they gave me a list of 35 shows. Like, here, Peter, you know, that's, that's what we're going to do. And I was still in school. So uh, I was able to afford my own car, pay my own insurance, my own gas money. Yeah, then, then the guy who did uh, the PA for, for that band, he, he said, well, Peter, if you come and mix, why don't you come and set up the PA with me and tear it down and I'll pay you the same amount of money. So I was like, okay, that was a good deal. And then, you know, the manager of that band, he said, well, I'm going to work for a bigger sound company. Why don't you come there? And there I met other people and... Then from there on, I was starting to play in, in my own band. Uh, it was a cover band, but with 11 people, we played some soul music with, with horn section and backing vocals, etc. So it was a pretty big band. Yeah, we needed good sound engineers. And because my parents had the music shop, we had a guy who came into the shop on Saturdays to help us sell all those Moog synths and, and those Yamaha CS80s and, and the Jupiters, etc., etc. And that was my first mentor. And he put me in contact with Patrick Domustier, the guy I, I told you before. And yeah, he was like the guy who took an MC50 uh, sequencer and ran his playlist through there and had to press play. And then all of his effect rack uh, was coupled to MIDI. And he was like, ah, oh, I want my own presets for, for that song. Like we would do now with digital desks and put scenes together and snapshots and yeah, he was pioneering the, the MIDI setup. He asked uh, Alt Cominotto, my first mentor, he said, well, don't you know a guy who can help me with this? And he said, yeah, I got exactly who you want, and that's Peter. 
So that's how I met him. And then I asked him, well, can't you come and mix our band? And a few years later, uh, yeah, I was at Rock Worker doing backline power. <laughs> that was the, the bottom of the ladder <laughs> I had to climb. Yeah, I had to start somewhere. Just pull the multi-cores and, and stack the subs underneath the the, the stage and uh, do the, the backline power, etc. And then a few years later, I, I got promoted and um, I was at front of house doing the service you need to do as a front of house sound engineer, as a babysitter, as we call it. And, you know, then that festival had David Bowie and R.E.M. and Lenny Kravitz and Jamiroquai. And yeah, you, we, we said, hello, and uh, how can we help you? And that was the day that the guys came in with one compressor or one vocal chain and they would put it on the local desk and that was before the digital age where now everybody has their own uh, digital desks and all everything they carry with them so that's where i i learned a lot by looking at the, the, the best live sound engineers in the world how they started from scratch mixing on uh, the local mixing desk and I learned a very <laughs> a lot from that. What did you learn about interfacing with other live sound engineers? Because many times, you know, a big act, you know, like a Tom Petty or mm -hmm. whoever it is, an Iron Maiden, will come in with their own dedicated front of house person. What did you learn about working with others in that capacity where maybe in a, in some situations you might be the main person but in this case you would have to take a back seat to the person coming in i loved it i really loved it because i had the idea of like you know peter if you're gonna have people come in on your set just treat them like you want to be treated if you were that guy and that's something that i took with me for years because I was always trying to be as friendly and as accommodating as possible because I was the guy in the in the seats and the sofas, you know, because it was my set, it was my rig that I controlled with, with the speakers I, uh, I, I tuned and they came in just being like, okay, what's today going to be? And back in those days, if, if you toured Europe, maybe in, in the UK, you got some, some decent service. But if you went to other countries, it was hell. So they came to work or, or Pickle Pop or, or big festivals we did. And they were always very, very pleased to have a, a decent sounding or a very good sounding PA system, a decent working front of house desk with all the outboard gear that they could wish. So, and, and then you have an assistant who goes like, okay, can you show me your patch list? Is there something that needs altering? And I was just putting in and all the inserts and, and, and programming effects if they would like to, or just assist them during the first three songs, keeping an eye out on the gates or the compressors and, you know, stuff like that. And just trying to get the psychology side up and yeah, then everything went very smooth. I want to come back to this that we mentioned earlier. You have been incorporating a lot of studio gear into the live sound area stuff that we typically would not see in most live sound racks. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I think I started it with getting some studio mics on stage, but I was always trying to get studio-like sound. And with the line arrays appearing, it was more and more likely that you get a really hi-fi sound. And 
One day I was looking for a bus compressor and I called Ronald Brandt, you know, maybe Ronald Brandt from Wisselort Studios. And now he's in New York. He's working in a studio there. And uh, I called him and said, Ronald, I need a stereo bus compressor. And he said, well, Peter, why don't you try an API 2500? And I called the uh, local dealer and I said, oh, can I borrow one for a show? And I put it on the desk and uh, the band starts playing during soundcheck. And I had it in bypass, this uh, silly bypass knob. And you, I would see the meters go and I was like, oh, let me uh, engage it. And um, that was in the morning and there was Brian Adams playing at the same day and Sting and Simple Minds also. And I turned it on and the PA jumped forward six, six meters <laughs> <laughs> because that was welcome to the trust function of an API. <laughs> and everybody turned their heads and went, what the eep did you just do? And I said, yeah, I just turned on the API. And, you know, that glued my mix together. And I think that just was always that little bit extra that I tried to get in my live rig. And I ended up with three 12-unit racks and carrying uh, Lexicon 480s and AMS RMXs and the Focusrite Reds and stuff like that. That was in the analog days. That And that's very unusual. I have very little experience doing live sound, but I do know enough that it's... I don't see people carrying around Lexicon reverbs like 480s in their live sound rigs Mm-hmm. Am I wrong about that? Or is that, that is uncommon, right? It's pretty uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. When I arrived with those racks, then the colleague uh, sound engineers from different bands, they came over and were like, huh, okay, who are you? So, <laughs> I'm, I'm with the headliner playing behind you. You know, there was like Kings of Leon. They were headliner. And then the band, I mix Arsenal. They, they just are the, the closing act of, of the festival. So, yeah, you know, they guys, those guys have a little bit of budget as well. So, yeah, that was, as I said, now it's back in those days. Now I just carry an Avid S6L and I use the plugins. That gets my job done as well. Yeah. So you have acquired a number of classic pieces, Pultex and mm-hmm. 1176s and LA2As, et cetera, et cetera, over the years, I've, as I've seen in your videos And for the audience, I'll include a link to uh, Peter's YouTube channel in the show notes, and you can check it out. He will give you a detailed tour of each of these racks, and you can get a sense of what he was taking out on the road, which I think is completely fascinating. So it's clear, like from the get-go, at 15, you started making money doing this, and over time, it seems like you didn't really have to do too much else to survive. You were working enough that you were paying the bills is that is that true yeah i think for the first 10 12 years of my career i combined it with working in the shop and my parents they put me on a commission because they said well if you're not there we're not gonna pay you if you are here and you you sell stuff we'll give you a commission combined with working for pa companies working for bands i could make a, a decent living yeah But I also think that I might be a a gear freak, but I also look at my profession as a profession. Not that I, I have the idea that I have to work, but there's a certain business mindset in it as well. Because in the end, you have to make a living. 
you have bills to pay and you can't go to the grocery store and going like, hey, I work for Hoover Phonic or I work for Arsenal or I work for this. Can I get a, a loaf of bread for free? That's not working. So that, that's why I always looked at my job as, as a profession and I worked with professional people and you know, you have to ask a certain price because my dad always said, well, if you do stuff for free, they're going to take you for granted. If you ask $200, people will respect you for $200. If you ask $500, people will respect you for $500. If you ask $1,000, people will respect you for that $1,000. And I think he was right. Yeah, so you clearly learned some financial advice early on from your parents in that shop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I did, and I'm very thankful for them because my daddy was always, he was not the most supportive guy because he, he always said, you're a too good musician for the people to be having their backs towards you because he said, you're a too good musician, you should be on stage. People should be looking at you instead of having their backs turned towards you because you're in the middle of the hall. Yeah, maybe. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a happy guy when I'm behind my board, you know, and I have the chance and the opportunity every week to be working with so incredibly talented people on stage that I feel honored that I just can be a part of it. But besides that, there's the business aspect of it. I have about four different mixing desks that I use live. They have to be paid as well. You know, Yamaha is not going to put it on my doorstep and go like, hey, Peter, here, uh, here's a free desk and you can use it for free. There's nothing for free in this world. So you always have to perform something for something. Yeah, absolutely. Did your dad consider it that you were taking a step back by being a sound person? Yeah, at a certain point, yes. But because it, I think it was just a little bit subconscious for, for him that his dream was that I would be the third generation in, in the business as the music shops, you know. Mm -hmm. When I was about 35, we opened up a, a second shop that was 1,500 square meters. So it was pretty big. Still, the, the shop exists. We don't own it anymore, but the name of my my grandfather is still above the shop's doors. So I'm I'm, I'm pretty honored still that the shops exist and, and they, they continue, but we're not the owner anymore. But at a certain moment, you know, I think it was when I, I did some shows with Simple Minds, I did a tour in Australia. Mm -hmm. That was the moment that he realized, well, you know, he's going to be a better sound engineer and, and, and going a further way into that alley than him being the keyboard player of the local cover band. That's the moment when I think he opened up his eyes and went like, whoa, is that my son? You know, he's in Sydney doing a, a sold out show for 10,000 people with a, with a world-class band. And uh, yeah, I think that changed his mind. And at, at the end, he, he found peace in it and still finds peace in it that he likes what I'm doing. What are the challenges that you've encountered as a, an audio professional in live sound? I think I, that I, I'm very proud to have been part of, of some, some bands that pushed me and I pushed them to venture in a technical world that a lot of people wouldn't understand at that point. That means that I did a dance band and I was like, oh, there's an SPDIF output on the keyboards. Why don't we just keep that digital until it goes into the amps of the PA? But I'm talking 15 years ago. Mm. Now it would be like, okay, let's do Dante and that, that would work. 
I think the challenges there was to convince other people about the quality improvements that you could get. And I think that's the pretty largest challenge that I that I ever had because I didn't think that at, at certain moments I made myself popular because I said, well, I would just want to go into the PA all digital. Let's give me an AES and it needs to be digital through AES cabling until it reaches the amps. Now, you know, I, I, I broke a lot of arrows and spears to get there. And now, you know, it's it's something that's very common. Now they ask, oh, you you have a Dante desk? Okay, here's a, a Cat 5 and let's let's keep it digital. But 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. Your desire for quality and, and clarity in the world of live sound, who influenced that in you, do you think? I think it's always the, the, the nerds that are in me, but also in, in the bands. They go like, oh, let's strive for something more. I think you, you hit the nail right there because I'm the guy who thinks in percentages. You get a good band, you get a good board, you get a decent PA, you get 70 or 75%. And then, you know, there's the guy at, at the stage who goes like, hey, I'm the keyboard player. Shall we use a different DI? Because those BSSs that we use, they're not good, are they? And you go like, okay, let's try something like a radial or a proprietary uh, DI that has a different transformer in it to achieve a certain sound. And from that moment on, you know, it's a collective act between you and the band members to achieve the best possible sound. And you add like 5% by having a better reverb and you add 1% by getting the right snare mic with the right tuning and you add those percentages and before you know it if everybody chips in a little bit you end up at 95 or 98 percent and there's still two percent you can't control but those 95 percent that's very controllable and i think that's something how does it come i don't know it's just striving for perfection mm -hmm that I never gave up and never will give up and, and I will get everything. And that starts with, with great communication with the band members and going like, hey, what drum kit you gonna play? What skins you gonna use? What cymbals you gonna use? Let's get that in balance and then I'll put some nice mics above it and, and, and let's start from there. And, you know, I work with people who, like a great bass player, Mirko Banovic, you know, he's, he asked me, Peter, just tell me what, what bass you need me to play on. <laughs> so if we get into certain situations where we have difficult acoustics, he, he goes like, oh, I'm not going to play my precision today. Let's, let's play my jazz bass and just play it on, on the back pickup because then he knows that I need definition. And I think that just combination, that, that's incredible, that if you have that kind of understanding between uh, the musicians and, and the, the band and, and the artist, don't cuff the mic. Well, my artist, they don't cuff the mic because they know that's bad for sound. So I'm very honored and, 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 and just very lucky to always be at the, at the right place with the right people. And that just yeah lifts the level. It, it's interesting when the musicians want to interact and have a, they want to have a dialogue about, okay, hey, let's, mm -hmm. let's work together to make this the best it can sound, as opposed to an adversarial type relationship where they say, this is me, you, you do what I say, you capture what I do, 
and keep your mouth shut, you know, kind of situation. Yeah, but that's ego. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with ego, but I always say, well, let's start with who's paying you. It's because the people who are in the audience, they bought a ticket that you can get paid. So you should be there for the audience and not like I am the artist and uh, the audience may be happy that they can come and watch me. Hmm. I don't believe that. There has to be a, a great understanding of who at what position. I'm very lucky that here in Belgium we have a very, it's a very, very, very small world. If I go on what we call tour, I'm sleeping in my own bed each night because if I drive 150 miles, I'm at the other side of the country. So it's a very, very small community. It's a very small world. Yeah, I don't think that at a certain point egos work anymore. What I mean about that is at the, at the early age, I have always been in contact with people who, who also strive for the best. And that the moment where you are the, the ignorant guy, you might get a, a pair of drumsticks thrown at your head because you don't pay attention to what the musicians want. But I've learned so much more from musicians about how they want to sound, how they get the sound, how they know how to get the sound, and they will help you instead of just blocking you yeah, I had the honor of, of working with one of the, I think it's a world-class drummer, it's Marek Bonne. He's so incredibly good. You give him a drum kit and he'll get every song a different sound out of the drum kit. And it's, it's incredible. But you have to talk to him and, and he'll teach you how to get certain things done. And then you take that knowledge and you take it to a different drummer, another drummer from another band, and you go like, hey, what Mark told me, and they go, like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. So I think that position, as I told you, like the bass player who says, oh, Peter, tell me what bass you want me to play on, or just tell me if I need my amps turned down or turned up, that also happens. But I think that's something because the, the music industry here in Belgium is very, very small, and we need to get along very well because you'll meet each other in different bands in different situations and i think that differs from from a situation where uh, touring crew in the states will just jump from one band to the other and they don't really care or not care as much or care on a different basis because the people i work with they're my friends yeah yeah i've i'll never forget doing a contract gig at a radio station to come and record and mix a performance in a pro tools rig for robert cray and the drummer said, as we were sound checking, he's like, hey, if you want Robert to change anything on his amp, just tell him. And I was, I, mm -hmm. I was just flabbergasted. I was like, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not going to tell Robert Cray what to change. This is Robert Cray. Yeah. I mean, gosh. It, it reminds me of a story I, I, I had with Mr. Bernard Purdy. Oh, yeah. You know, the drummer from Aja and, and so many other bands. He came to Belgium and, and he did a, a clinic for Slingerland. And there was a, a local music center here in, in Belgium, here in Hasselt. And the, the guy, uh, he asked me, oh, Peter, can you come and mix him? Because he's going to do a workshop on, on Slingerland drums. And I was like, yeah, sure, man. I'm, I'll take my two Chinese large condenser mics with me. And I, I walk into the hall and, you know, Mr. Purdy is playing. And I was like, wow, wow, it's incredible. And he looks at me and says, oh, are you the sound engineer for today? I said, yes, sir. Hmm, how are you going to amplify my drum kit, son? I was 22 years old or 23. 
I was like, I'm going to put a D112 in the kick and I've got these two condenser mics and I'm going to put them over drums and that's it. And he says, you know, I've been doing 250 clinics this year and you're the first one who doesn't want to close mic my drum kit. And then, you know, I put up the mics like this parallel and he said, ah, let me teach you something. And he dropped the right overhead mic and he says, well, if you keep the same distance from this mic to the snare to that mic from the snare, the snare is going to come out in the middle of your mix. And I'm like, thank you, Mr. Purdy. And up till today, I still mic the drum kit like that. That was something that you also learn from a, a very, very, very big name. And you that's, that's a tip I'll never forget. Yeah. It definitely helps to defer to experienced musicians to learn something. Just because they're a musician does not mean that they have no audio experience. They have a ton of audio experience in some respects. Yeah, it's true. You know, I worked for a band, Accelerate. It's a Belgian band, also based in Hasselt here. And she's a singer living in Brussels. But she worked with the musicians from Stax. Hmm. Stax Records. We did a tour with them and, you know, I asked them, well, hey, you guys, how did you get that sound? And, you know, the answer was, we only had one mic. It was a U47 who recorded everything through that. That's the Stax sound. Well, there you go. You know, first-hand information. You can't beat that. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I want to talk a little bit about your coaching of other sound engineers and producers. You created Masterclass, which for the audience is spelled C-L-A-E-S, like Peter's last name, Masterclass. Tell me about the addition of teaching. When did you decide that teaching was something that you wanted to do? Well, that same music center that asked me to mix Mr. Purdy, they had a, an educational program as well. And the founder, 
he came to me and said, well, Peter, there's a lot of people who want to learn about mixing. Why don't you put a, together a basic mixing skills course? And I think I taught that for about 15 years at that place. And then I did a pretty big festival and a friend of mine, he, he said, well, Peter, why don't you just go to this guy? He's organizing some classes for me because he was a great, or still is one of the best system engineers in Belgium. And I'm doing system engineering courses. So, so why don't you do just like mixing courses and let him organize it? So I did. And yeah, I always found a lot of joy in sharing my knowledge because People ask me sometimes, well, aren't you afraid people are going to take your place? And no, I'm not afraid because if, if somebody's better than me, just go ahead, please just take my place and take my spot and do your thing. I think that I have a lot of loyalty from my bands, one, and I still try to be on top of my game. I try to be the best. I don't mind sharing my knowledge. So that's where Masterclass started. And yeah, now with these Corona times, I developed some zoom skills and some camera skills and some, some lightning skills. And, you know, I was trying to get my message across first for free, totally for free. People could join every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. to hear me talk about my job because it was a, a learning curve as well. And now, you know, I'm planning to do those seminars on video and that people can go to a website and just get those videos on a subscription base. And I just want to share my knowledge for people all across the world, because it's not only here in Belgium or in Flanders or in Holland or in Germany that people need education. I think it's something that, that could people benefit from worldwide. And it's something that I have the equipment, I have the knowledge, and I just don't mind sharing it because when I was 16, 17 years old, I asked some front of house mixer, like, can I come with you? Can I join you? Can I be your apprentice? And he just said, no, I'm not sharing my knowledge. And I just disagree because I think everybody just needs good guidance and some inspiration and some good ideas and, and just get going on their own way. Because I think you can't copy yourself anyway. There's just you not that place is taken if if somebody else wants to do his thing that this yeah i would say if we are three chefs or two chefs and we make spaghetti with the same ingredients then your spaghetti will taste different than my spaghetti so it's the taste that that makes the difference so even if you share your knowledge nobody will ever copy you exactly because there's only one peter class and one mad Boudreaux. This is true. This is true. Now, you prior to COVID, you were doing this in person. Yeah, 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 I did. I would get all the mixing desk manufacturers and, and supply me with 17 desks. And I would get 12 people in a room, hook those 17 desks up in, in one network and just with one laptop play a multi-track. And I would coach those people. Or then that was the basic course, two days and continue with a course for compressors and one course for effects and i think that in the future i had mark carolyn the sound engineer for muse i planned a workshop with him for three or four days in belgium that was sold out but then COVID came and we had to cancel it so we're going to repeat that in october if possible if everything uh, is back to normal and i just want to 
just continue getting uh, the the masterclass brand out of Belgium and, and into the world and have people benefit from the knowledge that's there. And that's why I, I started doing all those YouTube videos. And, and in every YouTube video, it's not just a, a comparison between two mics or some compressors, but there's always a little bit of knowledge that is shared in those videos as well. Yeah, you have a great way of presenting information. And I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who are doing comparisons. Like, let's take, for example, your you did a comparison of your Vintage 67s to the Warm Audio 67. And I'm sure that those exist out there. But there's this, I mean, quite honestly, it's a credibility thing for me. Like, I, I listen to you talk, and I'm like, this guy knows what he's talking about, and he's hitting all the points that I want to know about and presenting things in a way that I walk away learning something every time I watch one of your videos. I'm not one who likes to go hunt around YouTube for videos like yours, but... Just the way you do it is really appealing to me in how you present the information. Your video on the LA-2A's comparisons, you know, once again, you just, you learn little, little differences in things talking about not to get down a rabbit hole because this is working class audio, but like you're highlighting things that I just gloss over, like the differences between, you know, like the silver LA-2A and the whatever the gray one just because i think there's a slight difference you said in the uh, in the t4 cell mm -hmm. yeah i watch is. it and i'm like really hmm i never knew that well that's that's mm -hmm. great i learned something new well i think th that's my approach just not to be too theoretical or too commercial just i hate being commercial because you know now between brackets success of of the videos you know there's there's manufacturers that contact me well hey peter can you do a video for us and i'm like yeah but that's not my thing that's not my goal you know i want to i just want to compare stuff that people can afford with stuff that people have difficulties to afford and i'm just very lucky that i have that kind of gear so why not just be very honest about it and if wa67 is nearly as good as a 67 why don't i tell it and, and if a 251 just is totally off from a real 251 i will say that also and then the manufacturers go like hey but what if we pay you to just give us a, a positive review and i'm like yeah you you can't pay that because i'm not doing that you know it's 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 out of the question i just want to be very honest and very me about what i do and just i record it on video and i put it on on the web and uh if you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, well, bad luck. You know, there's always people who, who will criticize you. Well, you didn't do this and oh, your calibration sucks. And, uh, uh, and you know, that's why I went like, like with the, with the horses, I know, you know, oh, I hear the, uh, I hear the critics coming on the horses because yeah, whatever, you know, you you do something and there's always some guy or some group of people who will uh, put you down in order that they will feel themselves better. And I'm like, Hey man, I, did I force you to pay for it? Or did you force you to watch it? Whatever. If you don't like it, skip it, you know, <laughs> whatever. And just if you, if you can't learn something from it, then okay, good. Then you're better than me but it's not the competition it's just something that i like to share and 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 for a lot of a lot of people that that really benefit from it and go like wow really a 67 
yeah, I'm honest, Matt. You know, I have two 67s and the, the warm audio just fits right in between them. And why not tell it? So it's a good choice for people who, who have $1,000 to, to spend on a mic instead of $8,000 or $10,000 for, for a real 67. That's right. Yeah. But if a 251 sucks, it sucks. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, and, and that's the thing is, you know, I'd, I'd sit and I'd listen on my... Uh odyssey headphones over here and really like listening to what you're doing i'm like oh that that sounds just like the other ones and then you'll chime in and say exactly what i was thinking i'm like oh okay good i'm glad i'm not the only one thinking this yeah there will always be differences but yeah you know it's is it is it worth the, the time of the discussion it's better to, to focus yourself on on the content of the video and learn something from it not that i'm trying to pass on a certain message or whatever but it takes a lot of energy and a lot of time for me to get in that depth and and always try to get that angle into something like with with the the la2s just turn up a sine wave a 1k sine wave and and look at the harmonic distortion that's imparted look at the noise that's imparted that's what makes the sound of the plugin yeah and if you if you run an acoustic guitar through it yeah okay this one sounds better and that one sounds worse but why right why does it sound better or worse well that's very analytical that you show it to the people like hey look that's the harmonic distortion what you get and that's the release time you get well and it's it is challenging video itself is time consuming to do and the amount of effort that you put in to these videos shows. And so when you get the people, I'll turn to a video and I'm like, I get a lot of value out of it. And then I'll see somebody give a thumbs down. I'm like, what's going on here? What, what did not work for somebody who watched this? And you know how it is, the critics. The critics, yeah, but they will always be there. But if I look at it, uh, like the U67 versus Warm Audio now has about 36,000 views. And there's about 26 or 27 thumbs down. So you go like, okay, what's the ratio? It's just something, if I had to stop myself listening to the critics and I start with my vantage point is like, how can I make a video nobody can criticize? Knowing that people will criticize, but I'm going to really great, great, great lengths to consider every aspect of just negative comments. But that's just me because I'm a perfectionist. Yeah. So, but that's what it is. I just try to do good and try to do my best to, to present something that people will like. What role now does your studio play in your life? How much studio work are you doing these days? And if you had to pick between live sound and studio sound, would that be a difficult decision for you? No, not at all. It's mainly live sound. This is my hobby room, Matt. <laughs> I do projects, but I think it's like, you get stigmatized at a certain point. They put a stamp on your forehead and you go like, oh, Peter's a front of house sound engineer. We don't need to ask him to mix a record. Until, you know, I get a really good bond with those musicians or bands. And they go like, hey, why don't we ask Peter? Look at his studio and look at the work he did and look at his track record. But I'm not the guy people call basically like, hey, can you mix our record? That's not happening. People will ask me, hey, can you come and mix our show? I think my reputation there is more established because of my track record there. 
but I used to have a whole series of, of CDs I did here. And I'm very, very proud of, of some very big projects of DVDs, live DVDs for the biggest names in Belgium. And also some records for the biggest names in Belgium. But it's like 10 or 15% of my work. But I do some corporate stuff. I make the V-Drum videos for Roland worldwide. So the stuff that gets recorded in the States, they send it over to me and I get to mix that. But that doesn't get into the news. You don't get a Grammy for it. You don't get an award for it. It doesn't show in the charts. But hey, that's the work that has to be done as well. That's working class audio right there. That's working class audio, trying to survive in a different kind of way. Let's talk a little bit about work-life balance relationships, friends, family, how have you managed your audio work in relation to your relationships in your life? It was dominating. I think my work was dominating my life. I was 28 years old when I had my uh, first relationship because I was always afraid that a woman would get in the way of my ambition. Mm -hmm. I think ambition is the main word. When I was between my 20th and my 35th years old so that was ambition 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 and i wanted to reach the top and and just climb the ladder so a relationship was out of the question friends mainly my friends that i have are from hobbies that i do but that also was not the case in the first 20 years because my friends were the guys I toured with or I, I did some jobs with or there was the monitor guy or the lighting guy. Those were my friends or musicians were friends. But to say that I have had some really good friend relationships that lasted, I can't say that. So it was it's pretty lonely life until a few years ago when I met my wife and I got married and I started my private pilot license as a pilot and I got some really good friends out of that. When I was 36, I had some people uh, die around me. So like the people I really, really cared about, like my grandfather and my uncle. And that changed my life because I was I was on tour and, you know, my dad walked into the studio because we were mixing a, a live DVD and he said, ah, your uncle died. Okay. Boom. That was the moment where I said, whoa, I think I need a change in my life, you know. Let's start to play golf. That's uh, something that can be very relaxing. And I think that sport, if you can call it that way, that opened so many doors to a lot of different people outside the music business. Because I grew up in a music shop, Matt. What do you want? You know, you have musicians <laughs> around you from, from morning until the night. And my father, he played in some bands. So those guys hang around the, the house. And that's music, 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 music. And at that time, I was like, I need to know, get to know some different people. So it was pretty dominating for, for many, many, many years, yeah. I'm just making a, an assumption here that as COVID starts to wind down, as more people get vaccinated and as the, and as the world starts to open up a little more to public events, I'm assuming that you have work planned out or that you will jump on work that comes your way for live work. Yeah, yeah. Life, but also a little bit studio work, but mainly life. Yeah, if we look at it a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, it was the Belgian government decided, well, you know, let's open up things and let's start again with some festivals. 
So once a sudden you come from an empty agenda and now my agenda is full because I have five bands who uh, who are going to play. I'm very, very lucky because those bands are, that's the best of what Belgium has or amongst others. So we get to play all the, the, the nice big festivals, but will it happen? That's that's the big question because I was let down so many times in the past year and a half that I just don't have any hopes right now. You know, you have it in the agenda, but you never know if it will actually happen. So I'm very curious if that plan will come together. If yes, I'm a very happy man. If no, then let's see what, what happens, you know. On that note of survival and work and the future, do you have an overall financial philosophy to keep yourself financially stable? Yeah, good question. I think in the beginning you go like, oh, what's happening? And then the government chips in, they go like, we're going to give you 10% of your figures. So you're going to get a certain amount each month. And on your personal account, you will give you some money as well. But of course, that doesn't cover all the charges. On that note, I think I have such a great inventory of gear that I acquired over the years. And I keep it nicely in, a, in an Excel file. And I decided to just get rid of the bottom 10 or 15% of the gear that I didn't use anymore. So I dove into my, uh, my storage spaces and I was like, okay, because it's one of the, actually it's one of your tips uh, that you said, <laughs> if you didn't touch it for 18 months, it has to go. <laughs> so I was like, okay, thank you, Matt. Let's uh, put that into practice. So I, uh, I went to my storage spaces and I was like, okay, what can I get rid of? And what can I get rid of in my studio that I don't use anymore? Because, you know, I like the fact that if you um, use compressors, like a 2254, if you compare it with some hardware versus some plugins, the hardware will win. But uh, an EQ is just something that is more mathematical and doesn't involve that much processing, etc. So it, it's more one-to-one copyable. So I was like, okay, I've got a pair of Neves. I'm going to sell that. And in that way, I was able to sustain my lifestyle. I was able to just even grow my bank account because I, uh, I got rid of stuff that I could have gotten rid of a long, long time ago. But I did, just didn't have the time. And now COVID just gave me the opportunity to go like, okay, let's put it on reverb and let's see who can buy it or who can, I can do a favor of it. And reverb has been a really good website for that because uh, yeah, it's just really musical or oriented and people find their way on it and, and they give you great support. Yeah. I, I, I sold quite a lot of gear on, on reverb and that's how I, I managed to just keep my head above the water. And moving forward, once you have income coming in from live shows, is your philosophy one of saving or are you a spender? I'm an investor. Ah, <laughs> uh, that was the best answer. Well, <laughs> my wife thinks I'm a spender, but I think that over the, the past, well, let's say 30 years, I still have my, my first compressor. I still have it. I still have my second compressor, a Summit DCL 200. I uh, I bought back in those days. There's certain stuff I bought, and if I don't use it, I'm selling it. But I also put 
a lot of money in uh, a really nice vintage mic collection. And sometimes uh, if you look at prices going up, it's a better investment than having that kind of money in the bank. If you look at it, I've got a Blue Stripe 1176. Did you hear my interview with Dan Alexander? Not completely yet. No, no. Even in the promo for that, he was talking about the value of vintage gear and how people are hoarding. Well, he said this in the interview that people are hoarding vintage gear. And he said, you know what a Blue Stripe 1176 is? That's $15,000. That's what that is. Mm -hmm. So you should listen to that episode based on this conversation right now. Oh, I have his book next to the bed. Oh, you do? So every night I, I I look through a lot of pages and then I get really sick because I look at the prices that are advertised in his book and I'm like, oh, why didn't I get born 20 years earlier? But I, yeah, I had my share of buying some, some really nice pieces of gear at really moderate prices. And then if you look at Reverb or eBay, but it's not always the, the prices that are advertised that will be paid for it. If you really have a crazy guy who wants a blue stripe, then he will pay uh, 15,000 euros or dollars for a blue stripe. But that's what the crazy man wants to spend on a crazy thing. But it's not, I don't think it's really worth it. But it's just this, the lack of, of supply that just rises all the, the prices. And yeah, you know, I know that, that back in those days, I've been on eBay for about 20 years. And back in those days, you know, you could buy a U47 for $5,000. Well, mm, that would be a great bargain. Yeah. Know? But also, like, I think that's the business, Peter, talking then. Because having had those music shops and being there as a, as a salesperson or a management person, I've seen so many things pass in the past 50 years you know there were moments that people would carry a, a fender twin into the shop and go like now please give me that pv bandit 112 <laughs> because i don't need to change the tubes on that well yeah bad investment so i really know that if you have some classical gear it will always rise in price and it's a good investment but i hate the idea that some very rich people put their money into a lot of vintage gear and prices will rise and they don't use it. It's no use to have five U47s sitting in a bank vault just for you to wait until they hit $25,000 and then that's the moment that you'll sell them. It's gear. It's made to make music. Use it to make music. Yeah. And just use the gear and go like, sometimes, you know, I have, I have my assistant, my right hand, you know, is a young guy. He's 24, 25 years old. He's trying to run his own studio. And you know how hard oh, that is. God. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So he he put a lot of money into it. And it, he, he has some difficulties just to get people in there and record. And I'm like, you know, Tim, if you put my U47 or my M49 on your website, just if you need it, just give me a call, man. You'll get it. If I can help you get an audience and, and get clients through that and attract people, then just give me a call. I'll help you. You know, I don't, e I don't even want some money for it. But yeah, that's something that people look at. What's in the studio? What gear is in the studio? But it's, it's you know, Matt, it's the, the guy who, who pushes the record button that makes a difference. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time, Peter. Uh, where can people find out more about you? 
Well, I would suggest to go and have a look at my YouTube channel, Masterclass, C-L-A-E-S. There's some very interesting videos on the gear I have, also some reviews I did. But also there's a band called Hooverphonic. They just participated in the Eurovision Song Contest. And there's a nice documentary on uh, my uh, YouTube channel in the playlists section where people can have a look at how I used my uh, vintage mic collection to record a full album in people's homes. And I think that was on a recording scale. For me, it reached 15 on a scale of 10 because it was very, very challenging. And it was very, a lot of fun to record with that kind of people and that kind of band. Mm. Should I put a link to verysound.be? That's an option, please. And also masterclass, masterclass masterclass.be. That's my teaching thing. It will change soon because I'm planning to record my teaching uh, courses and put them online and people can uh, have a listen and have a look at my videos for a small, very small subscription amount. That's fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll put all that for the audience and they can check that out. Really glad that we got to, to chat, Peter. Thank you so much for making time for me here today. Well, Matt, I must thank you because I'm a great fan of your channel. I mean it. And I think for me, it's an honor to be one of those superstar engineers that you have interviewed over the past years. You do a great job. Really, really, really. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor for me to be a part of I the show. I appreciate, appreciate the comments. That's, I'm glad it's brought value to your life. It's, it's been great for me. I've, been, I've enjoyed it myself. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, whenever I'm in the car, working class audio is, is on there because I must say I'm a Neanderthaler uh, uh, regarding podcasts because here in Belgium, that podcast didn't exist before COVID. So now people are starting to uh, get into the podcast thing. And then you look at your podcast and you go like, ooh, this guy's done 335 <laughs> shows or 33 shows. And I'm like, whoa, Jesus. So um, yeah, I'm catching up. I'm listening to it uh, in my car whenever I uh, I have the chance. And you do a great job. And, and especially all those high roller uh, sound engineers that you get into your show. And that's, uh, yeah, a lot of inspiration right there. Oh, well, thank you so much, Peter. It's 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 a labor of love for sure and uh i'm I'm really happy that you could be be a part of it too so thank you thank you very much our friends over at cali audio have just introduced the brand new lp unf system which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere and the system is specifically designed for your desk so no matter how else you're using your desk reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Peter Class here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and consider leaving a positive review, something of maybe a, a, the length of a novel, or if you don't have time, you can always just leave a five-star review. 
if you like the show, of course. But uh, that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anna Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.